Part One of Fables in Slang by George Aid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part One of Fables in Slang by George Ade. The Fable of the Visitor Who Got a Lot for Three Dollars The learned phrenologist sat in his office surrounded by his whiskers. Now and then he put a forefinger to his brow and glanced at the mirror to make sure that he still resembled William Cullen Bryant. Near him on a table was a pallid head made of plaster of Paris and stickily ornamented with small labels. On the wall was a chart showing that the orangutan does not have Daniel Webster's facial angle. Is the graft played out? asked the learned phrenologist as he waited. Is science up against it or what? Then he heard the fall of heavy feet and resumed his imitation. The door opened, and there came into the room a tall, rangy person with a head in the shape of a rocky Ford cantaloupe. Aroused from his meditation, the learned phrenologist looked up at the stranger as through a glass darkly and pointed to a red plush chair. The easy mark collapsed into the boarding-house chair, and the man with more whiskers than Darwin ever saw stood before him and ran his fingers over his head tarantula-wise. "'Well, well,' said the learned phrenologist. "'Enough benevolence here to do a family of eight. Courage? I guess yes. Dewey's got the same kind of a lump right over the left ear. Love of home and friends? Like the ridge behind a bunker. Firmness? Out of sight. Reverence? Well, when it comes to reverence, you're certainly there with the goods. Conscientiousness, hope, and ideality. The limit. And as for metaphysical penetration, oh, say, the metaphysical penetration right where you part the hair, oh, Laura, say, you've got Charles Eliot Norton whipped to a custard. I've got my hand on it now. You can feel it yourself, can't you? I can feel something replied the human being with a rapt smile. Wit, compassion, and poetic talent, right here where I've got my thumb. A cinch. I think you'll run as high as ninety-eight percent on all the intellectual faculties. In your case, we have a rare combination of executive ability or the power to command, and those qualities of benevolence and ideality which contribute to the fostering of permanent religious sentiment. I don't know what your present occupation is, but you ought to be president of a theological seminary. Kindly slip me three dollars before you pass out." The tall man separated himself from two days' pay, and then went out on the street and pushed people off the sidewalk. He thought so well of himself. Thereafter, as before, he drove a truck, but he was always glad to know that he could have been president of a theological seminary. Moral. A good jolly is worth whatever you pay for it. The Fable of the Slim Girl Who Tried to Keep a Date That Was Never Made Once upon a time there was a slim girl with a forehead which was shiny and protuberant, like a Bartlett pear. When asked to put something in an autograph album, she invariably wrote the following in a tall, dislocated backhand. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. That's the kind of a girl she was. In her own town she had the name of being a cold proposition, but that was because the primitive yokels of a one-night stand could not attune themselves to the views of one who was troubled with ideals. Her soul panted for the higher life. Alas, the rube town in which she hung forth was given over to croquet, mush, and milk sociables, a lodge of elks and two married preachers who doctored for the tonsillitis. So what could the poor girl do? 
In all the country around there was not a man who came up to her plans and specifications for a husband. Neither was there any man who had any time for her. So she led a lonely life, dreaming of the one, the ideal. He was a big and pensive literary man, wearing a Prince Albert coat, a neat derby hat, and godlike whiskers. When he came, he would enfold her in his arms and whisper Emerson's essays to her. But the party failed to show up. Often enough, she put on her chip hat and her black lisle gloves and sauntered down to look at the gang sitting in front of the Occidental Hotel, hoping that the real thing would be there. But she always saw the same old line of four-flush drummers from Chicago and St. Louis, smoking horrid cigars and talking about the percentages of the league teams. She knew that these gross creatures were not prone to chase mere intellectual splendor, so she made no effort to flag them. When she was thirty-four years of age and was able to recite Lucille without looking at the book, she was married to a janitor of the name of Ernest. He had been kicked in the head by a mule when young and believed everything he read in the Sunday papers. His pay was twenty-three a month, which was high, if you knew Ernest. His wife wore a red Mother Hubbard all during the remainder of her life. This is invariably a sign of blasted hopes. Moral. Never live in a J-town. The Fable of the New York Person Who Gave the Stage Fright to Fostoria, Ohio A New York man went to visit a cousin in the far west. The name of the town was Fostoria, Ohio. When he came into town, he had his watch chain on the outside of his coat, and his pink spats were the first ever seen in Fostoria. "'Have you a manicure parlor in this beastly hole?' asked the New York man as they walked up from the train. "'What's that?' asked the cousin, stepping on his own feet. "'Great heavens!' exclaimed the New York man, and was silent for several moments. At dinner he called for artichokes, and when told that there were none, he said, Oh, very well, in a tone of chastened resignation. After dinner he took the family into the parlor and told the members how much they would enjoy going to Weber and Fields. Seeing a book on the table, he sauntered up to it and said, Ah, one of Dick Davis's things. Later in the evening he visited the only clubhouse in town. The local editor of the evening paper was playing pinpool with the superintendent of the trolley line. When the New York man came into the room they began to tremble and fell down on their shots. The manager of the hub and spoke factory then asked the New York man to have a drink. The New York man wondered if a small bottle was already cold. They said yes, but it was a lie. The boy had to go out for it. He found one that had been in the window of the turf exchange since the grand opening, the year after natural gas was discovered. The New York man drank it, remarking that it was hardly as dry as he usually got it at Martin's. The club members looked at him and said nothing. They thought he meant Bradley Martin's. Next day the New York man was interviewed by the local editor. He said the West had a great future. In the evening he attended the annual dinner of the Bicycle Club and went home early because the man sitting next to him put ice in his claret. In due time he returned to New York and Fostoria took off its white shirt. Some weeks after that the cousin of the New York man had an opportunity to visit the metropolis. He rode on an extra ticket with a stockman who was shipping three carloads of horses and got a free ticket for every carload. When the cousin arrived at New York, he went to the address and found the New York man at dinner. There was a sheaf of celery on the table. Opposite the New York man sat a chiropodist who drank. At his right was a large woman in a flowered wrapper. She had been weeping. At his left was a snake-charmer from Huber's museum. The New York man asked the cousin to wait outside and then explained that he was stopping there temporarily. That evening they went to Proctor's and stood during the performance.
Moral. A New York man never begins to cut ice until he is west of Rahway. The Fable of the Kid Who Shifted His Ideal An ADT kid carrying a death message marked Rush stopped in front of a show window containing a picture of James J. Jeffries and began to weep bitterly. A kind-hearted suburbanite happened to be passing along on his way to the 542 train. He was carrying a dog collar, a sickle, a basket of egg plums, and a bicycle tire. The suburbanite saw the ADT kid in tears, and it struck him that here was a bully chance to act out the kind-hearted pedestrian who is always playing up strong in the Sunday school stories about Ralph and Edgar. Why do you weep? he asked peering at the boy through his concavo-convex nose-glasses. "'Ah, gee, I was just thinking,' replied the urchin brokenly. "'I was just thinking what chance have I got to grow up and be the main stem, like Mr. Jeffries.' "'What a perverted ambition!' exclaimed the suburbanite. "'Why do you set up Mr. Jeffries as an ideal? Why do you not strive to be like me?' Is it not worth a life of endeavor to command the love and respect of a moral settlement on the outskirts? All the conductors on our division speak pleasantly to me, and the gateman has come to know my name. Last year I had my half-tone in the village weekly for the mere cost of the engraving. When we opened Locust Avenue from the cemetery west to Alexander's Dairy, was I not a member of the committee appointed to present the petition to the councilman? That's what I was. For six years I have been a member of the League of American Wheelmen, and now I am a candidate for director of our new four-hole golf club. Also I play whist on the train with a man who once lived in the same house with T. DeWitt Talmadge. Hearing these words, the ADT kid ceased weeping and cheerfully proceeded up an alley, where he played wood-tag. Moral. As the twig is bent, the tree is inclined. The Fable of the Baseball Fan Who Took the Only Known Cure Once upon a time a baseball fan lay on his deathbed. He had been a rooter from the days of underhand pitching. It was simply pie for him to tell in what year Ants began to play with the Rockfords and what Kelly's batting average was the year he sold for ten thousand. If you asked him who played center for Boston in 1886, he could tell you quick, right off the reel, and he was a walking directory of all the glass arms in the universe. More than once he had let drive with a pop bottle at the umpire and then yelled, Robber! until his pipes gave out. For many summers he would come home one evening after another with his collar melted and tell his wife that the giants made the colts look like a lot of colonial dames playing beanbag in a weedy lot back of an orphan asylum, and they ought to put a trained nurse on third, and the dummy at right needed an automobile, and the new man couldn't jump out of a boat and hit the water and the shortstop wouldn't be able to pick up a ball if it was handed to him on a platter with watercress around it, and the easy one to third that ought to have been sponge cake was fielded like a one-legged man with St. Vitus dance trying to do the Nashville salute. Of course she never knew what he was talking about, but she put up with it year after year, mixing throat-gargle for him and reading the games to him when he was having his eyes tested and had to wear a green shade. At last he came to his ninth inning, and there were two strikes called and no balls, and his friends knew it was all day with him. They stood around and tried to forget that he was a fan. His wife wept softly and consoled herself with the thought that possibly he would have amounted to something if there had been no national game. She forgave everything and pleaded for one final message. His lips moved. She leaned over and listened. He wanted to know if there was anything in the morning papers about the condition of Bill Lang's knee. Moral There is a specific bacillus for every classified disease. The Fable of the Good Fairy with the Lorgnette and Why She Got It Good
Once upon a time there was a broad girl who had nothing else to do and no children to look after, so she thought she would be benevolent. She had scared all the red corpuscles out of the two-by-four midget who rotated about her in a limited orbit, and was known by courtesy as her husband. He was soft for her, and so she got it mapped out with herself that she was a superior woman. She knew that when she switched the current on to herself she used up about six thousand ohms an hour, and the whole neighborhood had to put on blinders. She had read about nine subscription books with Cupid and Dove tailpieces, and she believed that she could get away with any topic that was batted up to her and then slam it over to second in time to head off the runner. Her clothes were full of pinholes, where she had been hanging medals on herself. And she used to go in a handball court every day and throw up bouquets, letting them bounce back and hit her. Also, she would square off in front of a camera every two weeks, and the man was next, for he always removed the mole when he was touching up the negative. In the photograph, the broad girl resembled Pauline Hall, but outside of the photograph, and take it in the morning when she showed up on the level, she looked like a street just before they put on the asphalt. But never you fear. She thought she had Julia Arthur and Mary Mannering seventeen up and one to play, so far as good looks were concerned. And when it came to the gray matter, the cerebrum, the cerebellum, and the medulla oblongata, May Wright Sewell was back of the flag and pulled up lame. The downtrodden man whom she had dragged to the altar sized her all right, but he was afraid of his life. He wasn't strong enough to push her in front of a cable car, and he didn't have the nerve to get a divorce. So he stood for everything. But in the summer, when she skated off into the woods to hear a man with a black alpaca coat lecture to the high foreheads about the subverted ego, he used to go out with a few friends and tell them his troubles and weep into his beer. They would slap him on the back and tell him she was a nice woman, but he knew better. Anyhow, as Bobby Gaylor used to say, she became restless around the house, with nothing to do except her husband, so she made up her mind to be benevolent to beat the band. She decided that she would allow the glory of her presence to burst upon the poor and the uncultured. It would be a big help to the poor and uncultured to see what a real razzmatazz lady was like. She didn't propose to put on old clothes and go and live with poor people and be one of them and nurse their sick as they do in settlements. Not on your previous existence. She was going to be benevolent and be dead swell at the same time. Accordingly, she would lace herself until she was the shape of a bass viol and put on her tailor-made and the hat that made her face seem longer, and then she would gallop forth to do things to the poor. She always carried a ninety-nine-cent lorgnette in one hand and a smelling-bottle in the other. Now, she would say, feeling behind to make sure that she was all strung up, now to carry sunshine into the lowly places. As soon as she struck the plank walks and began stalking her prey, the small children would crawl under the beds, while Mother would dry her arms on the apron and murmur, Glory be! They knew how to stand off the rent man and the dog-catcher, but when two hundred and thirty-five pounds of sunshine came wafting up the street, they felt that they were up against a new game. The benevolent lady would go into a house, numbered 1135A, with a marking brush, and after she had sized up the front room through the lorgnette, she would say, My good woman, does your husband drink? Oh, yes, sir the grateful woman would reply. That is, when he's working, he gets a dollar ten. And what does he do with all his money? the benevolent lady would ask. I think he plays the stock market, would be the reply. Then the benevolent lady would ask, When the unfortunate man comes home this evening, you tell him that a kind and beautiful lady called and asked him please to stop drinking, except a glass of claret at dinner and be sure to read eight or ten passages from the Encyclopedia Britannica each night before retiring. 
Also, tell him to be sure and save his money. Is that your child under the bed? That's little William J. How many have you? Eight or nine, I forget which. Be sure and dress them in sanitary underwear. You can get it for four dollars a suit. Will you be good enough to have the little boy come from under the bed and spell Ibex for the sweet lady? He's afraid of you. Kindly explain to him that I take an interest in him, even though he is the offspring of an obscure and ignorant working man, while I am probably the grandest thing that ever swept up the boulevard. I must go now, but I will return. Next time I come, I hope to hear that your husband has stopped drinking and is very happy. Tell the small person under the bed that if he learns to spell Ibex by the time I call again, I will let him look at my rings. As for you, bear in mind that it is no disgrace to be poor. It is simply inconvenient, that's all. Having delivered herself of these helpful remarks, she would duck, and the uplifted mother would put a nickel in the can and send Lizzie over to the Dutchman's. In this manner the benevolent lady carried forward the good work, and dazzled the whole region between O'Hara's box factory and the city dump. It didn't cost anything, and she derived much joy from the knowledge that hundreds of people were rubbering at her and remarking in choked whispers, Say, ain't she the smooth article? But one day a scrappy kid, whose mother didn't have any lorgnette or diamond ear-bobs, spotted the benevolent lady. The benevolent lady had been in the house telling his mother that it was a glorious privilege to wash for a living. After the benevolent lady went away, the kid's mother sat down and had a good cry, and the scrappy kid thought it was up to him. He went out to the alley and found a tomato can that was not working, and he waited. In a little while the benevolent lady came out of a basement in which she had been telling a Polish family to look at her and be happy. The scrappy kid let drive, and the tomato can struck the benevolent lady between the shoulder blades. She squawked and started to run, fell over a garbage box, and had to be picked up by a policeman. She went home in a cab and told her husband that the Liquor League had tried to assassinate her because she was reforming so many drunkards. That settled it with her. She said she wouldn't try to be benevolent any more, so she joined an Ibsen club. The scrappy kid grew up to be a corrupt alderman, and gave his mother plenty of good clothes, which she was always afraid to wear. Moral In uplifting, get underneath. The Fable of the Unintentional Heroes of Centerville In Centerville there lived two husky young fellows named Bill and Schuler, commonly abbreviated to Shuey. They did not find any nourishing excitement in a grain elevator, so they enlisted to free Cuba. The government gave each of them a slouch hat and a prehistoric firearm. They tied red handkerchiefs around their necks and started for the front, each with his head out of the car window. They gave the Sioux yell to everybody along the track between Centerville and Tampa. While in camp they played double petty, smoked corncob pipes, and cussed the rations. They referred to the President of these United States as Mac, and spoke of the beloved Secretary of War as Old Alger. After more or less delay they went aboard a boat and were landed in Cuba, where they began to shoot at everything that looked foreign. The hot rain drenched them, and the tropical sun steamed them. They had mud on their clothes and had to sleep out. When they were unusually tired and hungry, they would sing coon songs and roast the War Department. At last they were ordered home. On the way back they didn't think of anything except their two lady friends who worked in the Centerville steam laundry. They rode into town with a machete under each arm and their pockets full of Mauser cartridges. The first thing they saw when they alighted from the train was a brass band. It began to play, See the Conquering Hero Comes. Then eight little girls in white began to strew flowers in their pathway. The artillery company ripped out a salute. Cap Gibbs, who won his title by owning the first steam-thrashing machine ever seen in the county, confronted them with a red, white, and blue sash around him. 
He barked in a loud voice. It was something about old glory. Afterward, the Daughters of the Revolution took them in tow and escorted them to Pythian Hall, where they were given fried chicken, veal loaf, deviled eggs, crullers, preserved watermelon, cottage cheese, sweet pickles, grape jelly, soda biscuit, stuffed mangoes, lemonade, hickory nut cake, cookies, cinnamon roll, lemon pie, ham, macaroons, New York ice cream, apple butter, a charlotte russe, peppermint wafers, and coffee. While they were feeding, the sons of veterans' quartet stood on the rostrum with their heads together and sang, Tenting tonight, tenting tonight, tenting on the old ah, campground. At the first opportunity, Bill motioned to Schuler and led him into the anteroom, where they kept the regalia, the kindling wood, and the mop. Say, Shuey, what the Sam Hill does this mean? he asked. Are we heroes? That's what everybody says. Do you believe it? No matter what I believe, I'm going to let them have their own way. I may want to run for supervisor some day. Moral. If it is your play to be a hero, don't renege. The Fable of the Parents Who Tinkered with the Offspring A married couple possessed two boys named Joseph and Clarence. Joseph was much the older. His parents brought him up on a plan of their own. They would not permit him to play with other boys for fear that he would soil himself and learn to be rude and boisterous. So they kept him in the house, and his mother read to him about little Rollo, who never lied or cheated and who grew up to be a bank president. She seemed to think that a bank president was above reproach. Little Joseph was kept away from the public schools and had to play games in the garret with two spindly little girls. He learned tatting and herringbone stitch. When he was ten years of age, he could play chopsticks on the piano. His ears were translucent, and his front teeth showed like those of a gray squirrel. The other boys used to make faces at him over the back fence and call him Sis. In due time, he went to college where he proved to be a lobster. The boys held him under the pump the first night. When he walked across the campus, they would whistle, I don't want to play in your yard. He began to drink Manhattan cocktails, and he smoked hemp cigarettes until he was dotty. One day he ran away with a girl who waited on the table at his boarding house, and his parents cast him off. At present he has charge of the cloakroom at a dairy lunch. Seeing that the home training experiment had been a failure in the case of Joseph, the parents decided to give Clarence a large measure of liberty, that he might become acquainted with the snares and temptations of the world while he was young, and thus be prepared to sidestep the pitfalls when he was older. They sent him to public schools. They allowed him to roam at large with other kids and stay out at nights. They kept liquor on the sideboard. Clarence stood in with the toughest push in town, and thus became acquainted with the snares and temptations of the world. He learned to chew tobacco and spit through his teeth, shoot craps and rush the can. When his father suggested that he enter some business house and become a credit to the family, he growled like a Boston terrier and told his father to go chase himself. At present he is working the shells with a circus. Moral it all depends. The Fable of How He Never Touched George A comic lover named George was sitting on the front porch with a good side-hold on your old friend Mabel. They were looking into each other's eyes at close range and using a rancid line of nursery talk. It was the kind of conversation calculated to jar a person. George murmured that Mabel was George's own baby Davy, and she allowed that he was a toony-woony little bad boy to hold his itsy-bitsy bun of a Mabel so tight she could hardly breathe. It was a sort of dialogue that Susan B. Anthony would love to sit up nights to read. While they were clinched, Mabel's father, a large self-made man, came down the stairway and out to the veranda. This is where the fable begins to differentiate. 
Although the girl's name was Mabel, and the young man's name was George, and the father was a self-made man, the father did not kick the young man. He asked him if he had anything to smoke. George gave him an imported panatella and said he didn't believe it was going to rain. Mabel's father said it looked black in the west, but he reckoned it might blow around like as not. Mabel said she wouldn't be a bit surprised if it did blow around. Mabel's father told Mabel she could show George where the icebox was in case he expressed a hankerin', and then he went down the street to examine some fishing tackle just purchased by a friend of his in the hay and feed business. Just as father struck the cement walk, George changed to the stranglehold. Moral. The exception proves the rule. The fable of the preacher who flew his kite, but not because he wished to do so. A certain preacher became wise to the fact that he was not making a hit with his congregation. The parishioners did not seem inclined to seek him out after services and tell him he was a pansy. He suspected that they were rapping him on the quiet. The preacher knew there must be something wrong with his talk. He had been trying to expound in a clear and straightforward manner, omitting foreign quotations, setting up for illustration of his points such historical characters as were familiar to his hearers, putting the stubby old English words ahead of the Latin, and rather flying low along the intellectual plane of the aggregation that chipped in to pay his salary. But the pew-holders were not tickled. They could understand everything he said, and they began to think he was common. So he studied the situation and decided that if he wanted to win them and make everybody believe he was a knobby and boss minister, he would have to hand out a little guff. He fixed it up good and plenty. On the following Sunday morning he got up in the lookout and read a text that didn't mean anything read from either direction and then he sized up his flock with a dreamy eye and said we cannot more adequately voice the poetry and mysticism of our text than in those familiar lines of the great icelandic poet icon navrock to hold is not to have under the seared firmament where chaos sweeps and vast futurity sneers at these puny aspirations there is the full reprisal when the preacher concluded this extract from the well-known Icelandic poet, he paused and looked downward, breathing heavily through his nose, like Camille in the third act. A stout woman in the front row put on her eyeglasses and leaned forward so as not to miss anything. A venerable harness-dealer over at the right nodded his head solemnly. He seemed to recognize the quotation. Members of the congregation glanced at one another as if to say, this is certainly hot stuff. The preacher wiped his brow and said he had no doubt that everyone within the sound of his voice remembered what Quarolius had said, following the same line of thought. It was Quarolius who disputed the contention of the great Persian theologian Ramtazuk, that the soul its reaching out after the unknowable was guided by the spiritual genesis of motive rather than by mere impulse of mentality. The preacher didn't know what all this meant, and he didn't care. But you can rest easy that the pew-holders were on in a minute. He talked it off in just the way that Cyrano talks when he gets Roxanne so dizzy that she nearly falls off the piazza. The parishioners bit their lower lips and hungered for more first-class language. They had paid their money for tall talk and were prepared to solve any and all styles of delivery. They held on to the cushions and seemed to be having a nice time. The preacher quoted copiously from the great poet Ambius. He recited eighteen lines of Greek and then said, How true this is! And not a parishioner batted an eye. It was Amebius whose immortal lines he recited in order to prove the extreme error of the position assumed in the controversy by the famous Italian Polenta. He had them going, and there wasn't a thing to it. When he would get tired of faking philosophy, he would quote from a celebrated poet of Ecuador or Tasmania or some other seaport town. 
Compared with this verse, all of which was of the same school as the Icelandic masterpiece, the most obscure and clouded passage in Robert Browning was like a plate glass in front of a State Street candy store just after the colored boy gets through using the chamois. After that he became eloquent, and began to get rid of long Boston words that hadn't been used before that season. He grabbed a rhetorical Roman candle in each hand, and you couldn't see him for the sparks. After which he sunk his voice to a whisper and talked about the birds and the flowers. Then, although there was no cue for him to weep, he shed a few real tears, and there wasn't a dry glove in the church. After he sat down, he could tell by the scarred look of the people in front that he had made a ten-strike. Did they give him the joyous palm that day? Sure. The stout lady could not control her feelings when she told how much the sermon had helped her. The venerable harness-dealer said he wished to endorse the able and scholarly criticism of Polenta. In fact, everyone said the sermon was superfine and dandy. The only thing that worried the congregation was the fear that if it wished to retain such a whale it might have to boost his salary. In the meantime, the preacher waited for someone to come and ask about Polenta, Amoebus, Ramtazuk, Quarolius, and the great Icelandic poet Navarok. But no one had the face to step up and confess his ignorance of these celebrities. The pew-holders didn't even admit among themselves that the preacher had rung in some new ones. They stood pat and merely said it was an elegant sermon. Perceiving that they would stand for anything, the preacher knew what to do after that. Moral. Give the people what they think they want. The Fable of the Handsome Jethro, who was simply cut out to be a merchant. An Illinois squab came home from business college with a zebra collar and a pair of tan shoes big enough for a coal miner. When he alighted from the depot, one of Esri Folson's dray-horses fell over, stricken with the cramp colic. The usual drove of prominent citizens who had come down to see that the train got in and out all right backed away from the educated youth and chewed their tobacco in shame and abashment. They knew that they did not belong on the same platform with one who had been up yonder in Chicago for going on twelve weeks finding out to be a businessman by heck. An elderly man approached the youth who had lately got next to the rules of commerce. The elderly man was a yap. He wore a hickory shirt, a discouraged straw hat, a pair of barn-door pants clinging to one lonely gayless and woolen socks that had settled down over his plowshoes. He was shy several teeth, and on his chin was a tassel shaped like a whisk-broom. If you had thrown a pebble into this clump of whiskers, probably you would have scared up a field mouse and a couple of meadow larks. Home again, Jethro, be ye? asked the parent. Yeah, replied the educated youth, with that he pulled the corner of a sassy silk handkerchief out of his upper coat pocket and ignited a cigarette that smelt like burning leaves in the fall. The businessman went home, and the parent followed at a respectful distance, now and then remarking to himself, Well, I'll just swan to Guinea. Brother Lyford came in from the East Eighty to get his dinner, and there was Jethro in the hammock reading a great work by Archibald Clavering Gunter. Get into some overalls and come and help me this afternoon, said Lyford. Oh, rats, not on your tintype. I'm too strong to work," replied Jethro, who had learned oodles of slang up in Chicago. Don't you forget it. So he wouldn't stand for the harvest field that afternoon. In the evening, when Pa asked him to milk, and he let out an awful beller. Next morning he made a horrible beef because he couldn't get loaf sugar for his coffee. Shortly after breakfast his Pa lured him into the barn and lit on him. He got a good holt on the Adam's apple and choked the offspring until his tongue stuck out like a pistol. "'You dosh-burned little pinhead of misery, you!' exclaimed the old man. "'Gall bring me if you think you're worth the powder to blow you up. You peel them duds and get to work, or else mosey right off of this farm.' 
The son's feelings were so outraged by this brutal treatment that he left the farm that day and accepted a position in a five-and-ten-cent store, selling kitchen utensils that were made of tinfoil and woodenware that had been painted in watercolors. He felt that he was particularly adapted for a business career, and anyway, he didn't propose to go out on no man's farm and sweat down his collar. After ten years of unremitting application and studious frugality, the businessman had acquired in real estate, personal property, stocks, bonds, negotiable paper, and other collateral the sum of nineteen dollars. But he owed a good deal more than that. Brother Lyford had continued to be a rude and unletterly country Jake. He had two hundred and forty acres of Kraken Cornland, all titled, a big red barn, four span of good horses, sixteen head of cattle, a likely bunch of shoats, and a covered buggy. Moral. Drink deep, or cut out the Pyrian spring altogether. The Fable of Paducah's Favorite Comedians and the Mildewed Stunt Once upon a time there was a specialty team doing seventeen minutes. The props used in the act included a hatchet, a brick, a seltzer bottle, two inflated bladders, and a slapstick. The name of the team was Zoroster and Zendavesta. These two troopers began their professional career with a road circus working on canvas in the morning and then doing a refined knockabout in the grand concert or afterpiece taking place in the main arena immediately after the big show is over. When each of them could kick himself in the eye and Slattery had pickled his face so that Stebbins could walk on it, they decided that they were too good to show under a round top, so they became artists. They wanted a swell name for the team, so the sideshow announcer, who was something of a kidder and had attended a Unitarian college, gave them Zoroster and Zendavista. They were stuck on it and had a job printer do some cards for them. By utilizing two of Pat Rooney's songs and stealing a few gags, they put together seventeen minutes and began to play dates and combinations. Zoroster bought a cane with a silver dog's head on it, and Zendavesta had a watch charm that pulled the buttonholes out of his vest. After every show, as soon as they washed up, they went and stood in front of the theater so as to give the hired girls a treat, or else they stood around in the sawdust and told their fellow workers in the realm of dramatic art how they killed em in Decatur and had em hollerin' in Lowell, Mass, and got every hand in the house at St. Paul. Occasionally they would put a card in the clipper, saying that they were the best in the business, bar none and good dressers on and off the stage. Regards to Leonzo Brothers. Charlie Diamond, please write. They didn't have to study no new gags or work up no more business, because they had the best act on earth to begin with. Lillian Russell was jealous of them, and they used to know Francis Wilson when he done a song and dance. They had a scrapbook with a clipping from a Paducah paper, which said that they were better than Nat Goodwin. When some critic who had been brought up by rival artists wrote that Zoroster and Zendavesta ought to be on an ice wagon instead of on the stage, they would get out the scrapbook and read that Paducah notice and be thankful that all critics wasn't cheap knockers and that there was one paper guy in the United States that recognized a neat turn when he seen it. But Zoroster and Zendavesta didn't know that the dramatic editor of the Paducah paper went to a Burgoo picnic the day the actors came to town and didn't get back until midnight, so he wrote his notice of the Night Owl's performance from a program brought to him by the head usher at the opera house, who was also galley boy at the office. Zoroster and Zendavesta played the same sketch for seventeen years and made only two important changes in all that time. During the seventh season, Zoroster changed his whiskers from green to blue. At the beginning of the fourteenth year of the act, they bought a new slapstick and put a card in the clipper warning the public to beware of imitators. All during the seventeen years, Zoroster and Zendavesta continued to walk chesty and tell people how good they were. They never could understand why the public stood for Mansfield when it could get Zoroster and Zendavesta. The property man gave it as his opinion that Mansfield conned the critics. 
Zendavesta said there was only one critic on the square, and he was at Paducah. When the vaudeville craze came along, Zoroaster and Zendavesta took their Paducah scrapbook over to the manager, and he booked them. Zoroaster assured the manager that him and his partner done a refined act, suitable for women and children with a strong finish which had been the talk of all Galveston. The manager put them in between the trained ponies and a legit with a bad cold. When a legit loses his voice, he goes into vaudeville. Zoroaster and Zendavesta came on very cocky, and for the seventy-eighth hundredth time, Zoroaster asked Zendavesta, Who was it I seen you coming up the street with? Then for the seventy-eight hundredth time, by way of mirth-provoking rejoinder, Zendavesta kicked Zoroaster in the stomach, after which the slapstick was introduced as a sub-motive. The manager gave a sign, and the stagehands closed in on the best team in the business, bar none. Of course, Zoroaster and Zendavesta were very sore at having their act killed. They said it was no way to treat artists. The manager told them they were too tart for words to tell it and to consider themselves set back into the supper show. Then they saw through the whole conspiracy. The manager was Mansfield's friend, and Mansfield was out with his hammer. At present they are doing two supper turns to the piano player and a day watchman. They are still the best in the business, but are being used dead wrong. However, they derive some comfort from reading the Paducah notice. Moral A dramatic editor should never go to a Burgoo picnic, especially in Kentucky. The Fable of Flora and Adolph and a Home Gone Wrong one morning, a modern Solomon, who had been chosen to preside as judge in a divorce mill, climbed to his perch and unbuttoned his vest for the wearisome grind. He noticed that the first case looming up on the docket was that of Flora Botts versus Adolph Botts. The applicant, Mrs. Botts, and Adolph, the other half of the domestic sketch, were already inside the railing, each attempting to look the other out of countenance. Break! ordered the judge. Don't act as if you were at home. Now what has Adolph been doing? It seemed that she alleged cruelty, neglect, inhuman treatment, violent temper, threats, etc., etc. We have no chills and fever music to lend effect to the sad narrative you are about to spring, said the judge, looking down at the plaintiff who belonged to the peroxide tribe. Furthermore, we will take it for granted that when you first met Defendant, your innocence and youth made it a walk-away for his soft approaches, and that you had every reason to believe that he was a perfect gentleman. Having disposed of these preliminaries, let us have the plot of the piece." So she told her story in a tremulous Viola Allen kind of voice while her lawyer wept. He was ready to weep for anyone who would hand him eight dollars. Afterthought, make it seven-fifty. It was a dark tale of how Botts, the viperish defendant, had sneered at her, called her, oh, such names, humiliated her in the presence of callers, and nagged her with sarcastic comments until her tender sensibilities had been worn to a frazzle. Then the defendant went on the stand and entered a general denial. He had been all that a rattling good husband could be, but she had been a regular Rudyard Kipling vampire. She had continued to make his life one lingering day after of regret. His record for patience and long-suffering had made Job's performance look like an amateur's half-try. "'There is more in this case than appears on the surface,' said the modern Solomon. "'In order to fix the blame, we shall have to dig up the first cause. I will ask Chemical Flora to tell us the story of her past life.' My parents were poor but refined," said Mrs. Botts. They gave me every advantage. After I finished the high school, I attended a conservatory, and everyone said I had talent. I should have been an elocutionist. Once I went to Rockford and recited the tramp story at a club social, and I got a lovely notice. I am especially good at dialect recitations. Humorous? asked the court. Yes, sir but I can turn right around and be pathetic all of a sudden if I want to be. 
I suppose that Botts, after he had lived with you for a while, didn't have any hankering desire to hear you recite," suggested the modern Solomon. That's just it. When I'd offer to get up in company and speak something, he'd ask me please not to recite, and if I had to make a show of myself, for God's sake, not to tackle anything humorous, with a conservatory dialect to it. But you wouldn't let him stop you. Not on your life. I'd believe you, even if you wasn't under oath. Now, will Mr. Botts answer me one question? Has he any ambition on the side? Although I am a bookkeeper for a gravel roofing concern, I have always believed I could write," replied Adolph Botts. About four years ago I began to prepare the book for a comic opera. A friend of mine who works in a hat store was to compose the music. I think he has more ability than Victor Herbert. Did this friend think well of your libretto? asked the wise judge. Yes, sir. He said it was the best thing that had been done since Ermine. In, in fact, everybody liked my book. Except your wife, suggested the court. That's it exactly. I wanted sympathy and encouragement, and she gave me the metallic laugh. There is one patter song in my opera that everyone who comes to my house has been crazy to hear. Whenever I started to sing it, she would talk in a loud voice. She never seemed to appreciate my stuff. I think the bleach affected her head. Has the opera been produced? asked the court with humane hesitancy. No, the Eastern managers were all tied up with Harry B. Smith, replied Mr. Botts. Then there's a prejudice against Western talent. Well, Mr. Botts, in view of all the evidence, I have decided to give you a decree of divorce from flow of the Wheaton tresses, said the modern Solomon. But look here, exclaimed the defendant. I haven't applied for any divorce. You don't have to. I give it to you anyway. As for you, Mrs. Botts, I will give you a decree also. The alimony will be twenty-five dollars per. Thanks. I don't think you grasp the decision. When I say that the alimony is twenty-five dollars per, I mean that Mrs. Botts will be required to pay that amount to Adolph every week. Shameful! Don't be too hasty. I further decree that Mr. Botts must pay the same amount to Flora every week. That simply makes it a standoff, remarked Mr. Botts, who was puzzled. My idea of the case neatly expressed, said the modern Solomon. Each of you is divorced from the other, and if either of you ever marries again, he or she will be jerked before this tribunal and sentenced to ten years of hard labor in some penal institution. Whereupon the court took a noon recess of three and a half hours. Moral. Genius must ever walk alone. End of Part 1 of Fables in Slang by George Ade